1: oh
2: welcome
1: to the dr joe show mom oh, that was that was unique that was a unique approach you know leaving me a little bit of a space in between each of the words i i like that
2: yeah I'm a trying to you know switch up my vocal warm-ups because i can finally announce now dr joe that i have in the cast of the bay players of duxbury's production of witch which will be coming up in the end of october that's fantastic well done. Just just in time for the spooky season, because it yeah. is the spooky season, Dr. Joe. Some might even say that there is a specter haunting the Dr. Joe show at this very moment.
1: What specter would that be, Tom?
2: I think it's our guest for tonight.
1: Mm. Uh, but but there's, there's so much more to that. I mean, we could either capitalize it uh, or not. But I would be very interested in hearing, who is our guest for tonight? Please introduce him.
2: Absolutely, Dr. Joe. Tonight, we are absolutely honored to have Professor Richard Wolf. Richard Wolf is an American economist known for his work on economic methodology and class analysis. He is Professor Emeritus of Economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and a visiting professor in the Graduate Program in International Affairs at the New School. Wolf has also taught economics at Yale University, City University of New York, University of Utah, University of Paris, and the Brecht Forum in New York City. Wolf hosts the weekly 30 minute long program, Economic Update, which is produced by the nonprofit Democracy at Work, which he co-founded. Welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Thank you very much,
0: and I enjoyed your speed reading of my bio. Thank you, thank you.
1: It is such an honor to have you here, Professor. Thank you so much for joining us. There's so much to talk about.
0: There certainly is, and uh, I know that you have an audience that is used to your jumping right in and seeing what can be said that isn't the same old, same old from the mainstream media. So I'm I'm very happy to be here
1: as well. Oh, I'm 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 delighted. Let me just back way up. How did you get interested in this entire field? Well, the truth of it is
0: that I grew up I, w- I was born in Ohio, but my family moved east and around the time I was 5 years old and settled in a suburb of New York City. And the name of that suburb is New Rochelle, New York. You may have Visited it or know about it? It's about a half an hour uh into Westchester County, out of New York City. I know it well. And
1: I went to I went to Sarah Lawrence, so I know. All right,
0: well. so I've driven by your alma mater. That's right, and you you probably passed my house. Who knows how many times <laughs> over the years? And like most of the people in New Rochelle, my father was a commuter. That he his job took him into New York City. And uh, I would see him off in the morning and welcome him home in the evening. And the way he the way he moved was by rail. Uh, there's a commuter railroad, the New Haven uh, line that runs along the coast there, stops in New Rochelle. So I would go with him when hmm. I was old enough, on occasion, you know, be with Daddy during the day working. And the railroad goes right from Westchester County, some of the glitzier and more expensive parts of that county, which is one of the richest counties in the United States, and passes right through Harlem in in New York City, on its way to Grand Central Station uh, in the middle of Manhattan. Hmm. And I would sit either on my father's lap or on the seat next to him, staring out the window, because that was fun to do. And I remember asking my father, because the train, uh, people have to understand, was elevated, still is elevated there. So when you come into Manhattan, you come into Harlem, the train is about the same level as people's apartments. And the, the tracks go really close. So you're really only maybe 20, 30 feet looking out your window, literally into the window of the people living there. And I asked my father questions. First of all, I didn't understand all about skin color. And I asked, these people are dark. What, what, what's that about? And he gave me an explanation And then it was crystal clear that these people were poor. Didn't take a genius to figure that out. And so I asked him about that. And two things happened. First, I was getting attention from my father, the likes of which I did not normally get. Something about these questions triggered in him a desire to really have me understand what this was all about. I didn't know, of course, how to think that through, but in retrospect, I can see that I began to pepper him with questions, not because the topic was all that urgent, but the attention from my father, that was wonderful, and I basked in that. And so it became a habit, even to the point where when we were back home in New Rochelle, I would talk to him about, reliving what we noticed on our last trip or what what someone said that we overheard. Long story short, my father made me understand that there is very serious injustice in the world. That's the way he handled this. Those people are required to live in conditions that are unfair, unjust, inappropriate, violate every—then he would remind me what I might have been learning in Sunday school or anywhere else, the contradiction between them. And he wanted to explain to me why that had happened, who were these people, where did they come from, and I just drank it up. I mean, it was very interesting. It wasn't that it wasn't interesting, but the combination of such a topic— that I was a witness of, because it was very real to me, I saw it out the window. My school system, when I was in elementary school in New Rochelle, had one African-American kid in it. And I don't know if there was any connection, but he and I became friends in the kindergarten and first grade. And the way it worked there we were let out in the middle of the day to walk home because it was an elementary school very close to where everybody lived who sent their kids there. So you would go home and make yourself a lunch or have your mother do it or whatever, and then go back for the afternoon. And so I brought, George was his name, still in my mind, many years ago, I brought George home. And after two or three weeks of bringing him home every few days, neighbors three doors down came knocking on the door of my parents' home and explained to my parents, my mother and father, why this was not appropriate for me, five years old, maybe six, to bring home one of those kids. And so my parents, I should mention, my parents were immigrants. My father came from France. My mother came from Germany. And all my life, I speak those three languages. I speak them now because I grew up in that in that language situation. And my parents were always a little nervous that they weren't quite American and they should pay attention to what people said and did and learn to fit in. Like many immigrants, they felt that pretty strongly. So they were pretty intimidated when this neighbor did this thing. And I could see, and I could see it in my father's face, when he sat me down and told me what had happened and told me he would not tell me what to do. Hmm. If I wanted to bring George home, just go ahead and do it. But be ready for whatever. I knew who that neighbor was, whatever might happen next. The neighbor, by the way, didn't do anything. On the other hand, after a few more weeks, I didn't bring George anymore because I didn't like the anxiety I felt. Is something bad going to happen when we pass the neighbor's house? Anyway, I don't want to bore you with it, but out of that came an intense engagement with my father. Which then continued as I got old enough to, to talk and think about these things and to give me books. And if you want to know where I end where I come from, it's there. It it, it my father gave me a feeling for what justice is and what it isn't, and made me understand it goes right into the daily life of everybody even when people don't talk about it or try to get away from it or feel uncomfortable about it, the truth of it is it intrudes on your life. And he didn't have to make a difficult argument because I was already at the tender age of five and six experiencing uh, all all that that was. And so even though I didn't intend to do it, when I had to make decisions in college about where to st- what to study, I ended up studying economics. But I'm very clear the seeds of that were planted by the question, why are some people living like what we see out the train versus living in New Rochelle, where my playmates were and where I was used to a very different
1: situation? Well, nothing boring about that at all, Professor.
2: Dr. Joe, we really struck it lucky. Speaking yeah. of striking. Professor, yeah. <laughs> why does no one want to work anymore? You see these yeah. UAW yeah. strikers and I see the the CEO of Stellantis going on CNN saying, uh the workers are demanding 500 million dollars each per person <laughs> with uh 6 months vacation. Basically everyone will go bankrupt within a week if their demands are met. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. He's a little
0: confused. I'm trying <laughs> to be as polite as I know how to be. He's a little confused. No worker gets millions of dollars. The only people in the automobile business who get millions of dollars are people like the CEO of Stellantis. In case you're wondering, I know how much he earns. $21 million last year. Hmm. Mary Barra, the CEO of General Motors, earns $29 million. And Here's two things to keep in mind when you think about the strikes at, at the auto companies and the many other places where strikes are exploding across the United States. I'm an I'm a economist, I do these kinds of calculations. So I asked myself, what does it work out to if you get 29 million dollars in a year? Well, I divided it by 52 you know, the number of weeks in a year. And if you do the arithmetic, that means Mary Barra earns, if that's the right word, could be takes, Hmm. could be, I don't know, steals, who knows? But it works out to $550,000 per week. Let Hmm. me do that again. That's her salary. And if you know how a strike works, the workers who are out with the picket signs that you see on TV, when they go on strike, they're not paid. Every day of that strike is money they expected to come into the household to pay for the food and the children's education and the the mortgage that's due and all the rest. However, the executives sitting across the table from the union leaders they do not suffer one nickel of reduction. Mm. Their pay is not affected by the strike. This is extraordinary. Mm. The only thing more extraordinary than that is for the chair or the CEO of Stellantis to find the workers overpaid and threatening the company rather than him and her And the people at the other end of it. Look, we live in a country, and pardon me wearing my economist hat, we live in a country that for the last 40 years, just shy of half a century, have experienced a radical redistribution of wealth and income from the bottom and the middle to the tippity top. If you look at the personal wealth of Elon Musk, or Jeffrey Bezos, or Warren Buffett or Bill Gates—names that have become household names—they are all presiding over tens, and in some cases hundreds of billions of dollars. You know what that means? If you get a 4% rate of return and you have a hundred billion dollars, it means you're making four billion dollars a year. You're not making five hundred and fifty thousand a week like Mary Barr. You're making five hundred and fifty thousand dollars every hour,
2: whether you go into the job or not. Of course, the counter there is that it's not actual liquid money, so it doesn't count.
0: Yeah, if you if you don't want it, if you don't want it to count, you can come up with that. But Mr. Bezos can decide that he wants to. I don't know send a rocket to the moon just to see what's there, and his money pays for it. Yeah. And Elon Musk is busily indulging his interest in making more money still, by having all kinds of projects you can hardly keep up with the fellow. No, I mean, th- this is a decision a society makes. Do you want to have people that are homeless in all of our major cities? At- The answer has to be yes, because we have them. We had them now, we had them last year, we had them 10 years ago. At the same time, in case you're interested, there are approximately 5 to 8, no one knows exactly, but 5 to 8 million apartments and homes that are empty. Nobody is in them. And we live in a country that has millions of homeless people who want a place to be, millions of empty homes nobody is using, but we live in an in a yeah. economic system that can't put these two things or their equivalent <laughs> together. Yeah. Which any yeah. half-rational person would understand that it is better to give a family the stability of having their own home. Here yeah. in New York City, where I live, We have this following statistic. 10% of the public school children in our system here in New York City, all five boroughs, 10% of them have been homeless for some part of the last academic year. Being homeless, you know, sent from one shelter to another is not a way to facilitate learning. They have no room of their own to go to. Yeah. They have no place to pluck in a computer, which is all right, since they can't afford one anyway. Meanwhile, there's somebody trying to figure out what cute thing he could do with an extra billion lying around somewhere in his sock drawer. Mm. I mean, it it is going to be very hard someday when the reckoning about all of this is made and publicly. It's very hard. For people like my father then to explain to their children then how all this was allowed to develop and to persist
1: for as long as it has Mm. you know it's the inequity is remarkable i i I just want to put this in perspective again for our listeners so based on that salary that you described it was 29 million dollars a year correct Mary Barra, yes,
0: she's the CEO
1: of General Motors. So, folks, that that actually works out to $230 a minute. A minute, right? It's $13,750 an hour. I don't know many people who make $230 an hour, certainly $13,750 is a lot of money for most people. So the part that gets me about this is, is this, There are so many places to go with this. Let me go back. I want to talk first about those homeless kids because not only is it anxiety provoking, you don't have anywhere to live, but their cortisol levels, their stress levels must be through the roof. And that alone can increase all sorts of risks for them uh, in terms of their long-term health, their, just their physical health, not just their mental health. Their cortisol levels are exploding, blocking dopamine, very difficult to feel any pleasure under stress, blocking oxytocin, the of trust, very difficult to trust anyone under stress. And then we are astonished uh, at the consequence and the outcome of so many of these kids as if they were bad, immoral human beings. And yet we have contributed to this. How much of this is based on our ancient biological brain, where we think there are limited resources. We need to grab as much as we can. We increase our value by decreasing somebody else's. Is that part of what's happening here as well?
0: I mean, I don't know the, the, the biology and the, the history of the human race well enough to answer in terms the way quite you put it. Let me, however, problematize the thought this way different societies throughout the history of the human race have handled that question in very different ways. It's not as though we have some line from ancient times that this is the way more or less people mostly did this. It's not true. Hmm. It's just not true. Human beings have developed all kinds of ways not to allow this to happen. Let me give you just a couple of examples. If you get a um, a religious education, I'll pick a Christian one. it doesn't matter. the same thing I'm about to tell you exists in other religions as well. But if you go back in the Christian religion, you will discover the concept of the Jubilee. very important concept. If you ever went to Christian Sunday school, you had a you may have forgotten it by now but you you might have paid attention when the teacher took you through the story of Jubilee. Here's what it roughly is. It turns out in ancient times, although times when it was modern enough that Christianity was there, uh, human beings recognized that there were many different forces that might make some people wealthy and other people the opposite, impoverished. And it wasn't deemed at all to be a personal failing. It was thought one person's piece of land is fertile because it gets more rain than the other one and so the crops grow and so and so. Or it didn't flood or, or whatever. Or the family got sick and this farmer took care of his sick family rather than plowing the soil. Whatever it was. And since it was nobody's fault, The way they reason. And since it was extremely socially dangerous, they said that. They said if we have some people that are very rich and other people that are very poor, the poor are going to become envious. They're going to become bitter. They're going to become angry. And in the end, that's a little scary for the ones who have because they're the objects of that bitterness and that anger. So in the interest of everybody, every few years, the chief of a village or the, the council of elders, if that's how they govern themselves, would declare the year of jubilee. And when that happened, the land was redistributed, often by lots. So you would get a different piece from the one you were stuck with. And so would the rich. And it taught everybody, be very careful how you treat the other one, because you may be in his or her shoes, she may be in yours, and not, you know, in heaven, but in five years from now, when we're due for the next jubilee. It was a way of equalizing and thereby mitigating internal disruptions that could be, and and sometimes were, violent. As well as socially disruptive absolutely yeah why why not by the way i've heard you know bible thumping uh christian ministers who learned their bible correctly talk about that in the pulpit on a sunday here in the united states and cause quite an upset because their parishes had never heard those stories or if they had thought that was somehow an ancient ritual, bygone years, and the minister is saying no. What is the lesson we can learn from what our ancestors did? And they did it for very good reasons. Uh, and And then there's the reality I'll give you right now. I mean, I'm going to describe to you a country I know really well because my relatives come from there, France. Okay, France is an advanced industrial capitalist economy, you know, like the United States in many ways. But they don't permit what we're doing here. Let me show you. France has a cradle-to-grave medical care system. If you are born in France—I'm talking about my relatives—you are covered for any illness, any injury that may happen to you in the course of your life until the day you die and therefore don't need it anymore. You don't have to worry about expensive operations. You don't have to worry about going into debt because you can't afford an expensive operation. None of that. Let me give you a second example. When you finish high school or college in France right now, the government government not a contract with an employer, not a personal relationship with the employer. The law says every employer must give every employee five weeks of paid vacation per year. Most Americans will not see that in their lifetime.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: In France, by the way, what I'm saying about France goes for other countries in Europe too. It's not unique to the French. In France, if you have a baby, the government provides you a social worker. You don't have to pay them a nickel. Who comes in the first, I don't know how many months, I think it's six months or more or less, and is there to help the new parents with shopping, with how to bathe the baby, the things that young people may not know when they have a baby. That, and that that's just considered a social service yeah. that everybody has to get. Last example, I'm actually going to take from Germany. I'm a professor, so I know all about this. In Germany, if you want to go on to higher education, after high school, you want to go to a college or a university. You can do that in Germany, as long as you pass the exams to get in. But the tuition is zero. School fees are zero. The only thing a student has to do is pay for his or her or their uh, room and board, or the upkeep of them as individuals, which they would have had to do, uh, done anyway. But there is no cost for for education. They want higher education to be just as free as primary and secondary education are in their country and ours. Yeah, But they, in German, look at you with astonishment. If you do it, they would ask me, if you do it for elementary school and high school kids, what's the logic of not doing it If the young person is able, willing, and interested to get more education. It's better for your country. They know more. They will have more chance to contribute. They'll have more to contribute. By the way, in Germany you get this, which may interest your audience, whether you're a German citizen or not. There are over 20,000 Americans in Germany now because they're going to get a BA or a master's degree, and they're not going to be in debt because they don't have to pay tuition
1: to do it. It's about support. It's about exactly. how we support each other, how our country right. supports an individual. Your
0: choice of the word support was, was really important and I just want to underscore it. We use the word free if the person who is getting something is not required to hand over five bucks or whatever the thing is, normally costs, but of course, It took human labor, it took all kinds of work to produce what is handed from one person to another. So the examples I gave from France and Germany are examples of a society which decided to support those who are poor, those who have low-income jobs, those who may have those together with large families, and so on, by supporting them by redistributing some of the wealth the whole community produces, so that the community is not undone by the inequality. Look, there's headlines, I, I, I get very angry when I see them in, in the newspaper. A person uh, hits another person with a brick in the subway tunnel. And the headline reads, senseless crime. I'm always upset. It's not senseless. If we go and interview that person, we'll discover the kind of childhood they had, the deprivations they went through, the personal suffering. And yeah, they took it and did something awful with it. And I don't want to shy away from that. But if we don't want the awful, we cannot pretend that the way we've organized society
1: has got nothing to do with that. Yeah. That's just plain stupid. I, I could not and agree more. And it doesn't more.
0: solve the problem.
1: I, I completely agree. I mean, and that's part of what the IM is saying, is that, you know, we all want the same thing. We want to feel valued by somebody else. Think about every person we've ever met. That's the common right. thread. But what we've found is for millennia, human beings have increased their value by decreasing somebody else's. And then we're astonished that that other person, that other group, that other country does the same. That's why we have the strife we have, the conflict we have. When you talked about the the jubilee, what what came to my mind was, you know, about anger. Anger is an emotion designed to change things. But the first step in, in managing it is just to recognize it. And what are you angry about? And you said it, envy. We're angry because somebody has more than us and we want to take them down. But the person that we're going to take down, they're going to become suspicious. And that's yeah. the root of their anger. And but, that is part of the world that we have right now. This this, this world in which there's so much cortisol. It's such a stress-driven yeah. world right now. But at every and any moment in time, you can remind someone of their value. And whenever you remind someone of their value, you increase your own value. I mean, why can't we have that kind of a world? Where where can we build on that so that we distribute more?
0: I think people like us, you in your way, I'll do it in my way. We have to keep talking about this Mm. because I think in all people, there is an ambivalence, maybe is the word or a contradiction. Partly they're defensive, and they, 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 as you put it, suspicious, yes. But another part of them knows. You know, there was a wonderful Canadian musician, Leonard Cohen. I don't know if you're familiar, Mm -hmm. but he he did a song once uh, that he performs called Everybody Knows. Mm -hmm. If you ever have a chance, you you know, easily access it on the internet. It's a beautiful piece of music, but the words... And his way, of, he, and the point was, everybody knows what you and I are discussing. They know, they do have in them the instinct, the pull to make it better. They don't know quite how to do it, you know, and and they're worried that somehow they'll be taken advantage of. I, I get all that, but there is enough for people like us to to work with, to say, look, let's let's think about how we can better arrange our community life so that each of us, when we're together and when we're alone in our own lives or families, will not be either a danger or a threat or an object of envy or a bitter. Let's try to do that, you know? My wife is a psychotherapist. Her life is dealing with people who have come to the point some of them with terrible problems, some of them not so terrible, but they've come to a point which I've learned from her is crucial. They want it to be better, and they're prepared to struggle. Even when their first instinct is to turn away or to not, they they can hear that there is a potential to do better, and wouldn't it be wonderful if we could do that, and if you could be part for yourself, for the people you love, for the people near you, but even for the larger society, if you could help contribute to that. I mean, look, I would guess that's part of the rationale why you make a program like this. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. And I take, I take my hat off to you for doing it. This, this is crucial. Th- that... and, 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 don't, and don't say to people, it's senseless that that poor mm-hmm. man beat that woman on the subway. It is awful. Mm-hmm. It must be stopped. I, I get all that. But if you don't do the hard work of trying to figure out how
1: this keeps happening, it will keep happening. That's exactly it. That's what the I am is saying is, but what we are saying is that this is our current maximum potential. This is the best we can do right now because we are influenced by and responding to these four domains. Our home domain, no one's going to argue your home has had an influence on who you are. The social domain, which is the rest of the world, that's everything other than your home. Those two domains are outside. Then the internal domains, the biological domain of our brain and body. Am I hungry, tired, digesting lunch, stressed out because I have no home? And then the IC domain. How do I see myself? How do I think other people see me? Your your wife knows that every single person is interested in what other people think or feel. We call that empathy. But what we really want to know is, what are you thinking about me? Right. Do you see me as valuable? And that story that you have about you as that little boy—your experience—don't don't let me put words. Was that your dad recognized something? The topic, whatever it was, and then you began to feel more valuable.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: And, and that, I don't think I don't, I don't
0: think he was conscious, but I think you capture. And I learned, I could see the effort in his face to explain. I'm a little kid, so he he's taking this complicated story and trying to make it graspable by a little kid. And that working, that touched me very. My father cares. Yes. Look at him. Yeah. It's so important to him. And so a little of what's important to him was me getting me to understand it so I think it fits perfectly in in your scheme there because I was as I said to you I was reacting to the fact that this man was making me
1: feel wonderful as he told me about this social situation yeah and and that feeling is this limbic response this ancient primitive part of our brain responsible for irrational behaviors emotions for pleasure, and then we shift to our prefrontal cortex, the rational part of our brain. When we are able to solve problems, execute a plan and anticipate what will happen next. And Professor Wolf, I think that is part of what you are asking us to do. What will happen next if we keep doing what we're doing now with the economic model that we have? What will happen next? if we keep increasing our value by decreasing somebody else's, we will destroy ourselves. Is that what we want?
0: I don't think we want it, but I sure do think we're doing it. Yeah, And that's why there's an urgency to all of this. I specialize in the international economy, and I have to explain to Americans what they don't want to hear. I have to try to do it in a way that isn't offensive, that isn't frightening. That, On the other hand, I have to tell the truth. Otherwise, you know, what What am I doing? What am I spending my time for? Yeah. And here, here's an, in a nutshell, the United States and its allies have dominated the world economy for the last century. And that's now over. Mm. I hate to tell you, I know it's difficult to hear. We have a model of what, how difficult it is when Britain went from the British Empire, upon whom the sun never sets, to now being a cold, wet, poor, offshore island of Europe. Yeah. That's a hard road to home. Yeah. We are now next. We, are, we, the United States. In 2023, for the first time, there's another economic powerhouse that has developed. Mm -hmm. It's called the People's Republic of China, Mm -hmm. and it has collected around it very powerful allies in something you'll see referred to in the newspapers as the BRICS, B-R-I-C-S, stands for Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Mm. The BRICS, China and its allies, now produce altogether 23 percent of the world's total output of goods and services. Sorry, 33 percent. The United States and its allies, which in the press you'll see referred to as the G7, the group of seven nations, United States, Britain, France, Germany, Italy, Canada, and Japan, that's what the G7 is, they now account for, U.S. and its allies, 29% of total output. China and its allies, 33. It's over. Only question now, the only question is, and this, if this frightens Americans, I hope it frightens them in a good way. If we don't come to terms with this new emerging economic powerhouse, if we try to stop their development, the way Britain tried to stop the United States back in 1776, and then again in 1812, mm. like the British who lost both those wars, we're gonna lose them too. Yeah, we can't, we can't control the world, we can't. You can try to influence it as you teach, but you can't control it.
1: No, you can influence it. We have so much more to cover. We would love to have you back at another time. That would be fantastic if you have the time. Before that, how do people find you, your website, your books? How can they learn more from you?
0: The easiest thing, and we maintain two websites. Uh, The organization is called Democracy at Work. Maybe if we get together again, I can tell you a little bit about that. Uh, We have two websites. One of them is called democracyatwork.info. Very simple, all one word, democracyatwork.info. And everything we do, books we publish, videos we produce, much more than you will have the time or interest to pursue, <laughs> but a big choice. And everything is free in the sense that we qualified a while ago. And the other one is uh, it carries my personal stuff. Uh, that's simply rdwolfme.com. Very easy to get to. Just remember that Wolf is spelled with two Fs. Um in the old Franco German style.
1: Yeah. It's, um We we will post those on our website. Um good. I, we're gonna ask you the two questions in a minute, but but one of the things about this big change in the world, um you remember the movie I think it was Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street, when you know, somebody comes into Macy's and they said, we're looking for this. And I think it was sad or something said, well, you can't find it here, but you can find it at Gimbel's. Yeah. And they <laughs> sent them to Gimbal's. Right. Right, which was sort of like a mind-blowing concept to actually right. give somebody else the opportunity to, to earn some money. Absolutely. And, and if you think about it, what happens now Macy's is still around. I don't think Gimbel's is in existence anymore. No, nope, it's gone. So, so there is a way. So let me ask you this the two questions. The first question because the four domains of the IM interact, the home, the social, biological, and IC, because they interact, a small change can have a big effect. We don't need to change everything. Based on our topic tonight, what small change can you recommend to our listeners?
0: Well, I'm going to say something. I, I'm not so sure it falls under the heading small, but right. I'm going to push a little. And, and Centuries ago, human beings were mostly organized in a way to carry out the production of the goods and services they depend on for their lives, food, clothing, shelter, all of that, were organized with a small group of people at the top. Who made all the key decisions, kept the bulk of the output for themselves, and directed the productive efforts of a large group of other people. So they were sometimes called masters and slaves. They were sometimes called lords and serfs. And they have nowadays changed their name again and are called employers Mm. and employees. Mm. But as far back as we have a record, there were always some people who said, we don't need and we don't want that division. That leads to unequal distribution of wealth and a whole lot of other things we don't want. And those people broke away in various forms and formed productive groupings For lack of a better term, we'll call them enterprises. This is what we call them today. That weren't working like that, that did not have the master slave, the lord serf, the employer. They were, and then they took different names collectives, communes, derivative words from commune like community or communal all these, I we're going to work in a different way. We're going to be horizontal. We're all going to be equal. One person, one vote. We will decide what we produce, how we produce, where we produce, and what we do with the valuable output that we all helped by our labor to generate. Let's call them, for lack of a better term, a modern term. Worker cooperatives. Mm. Okay. Here's my idea. Why don't we give the... By the way, they're sprinkled all through American history. Americans have always been interested in those things. If you're ever in Western Massachusetts, visit the um, Shaker communities there, uh, an early religious, Protestant religious sect in the United States, still going. But they always organized in this way. They didn't have ruler and rule. They didn't have any of that. And they've been very successful in longevity, and they make some of the most beautiful furniture the world has ever seen. They still do. Why not? Here's my little idea. Why not set up, governments can do that, set up worker cooperatives in every community, mm. help them get going, produce something that the community doesn't have enough of? Mm. Heaven knows that, you know, daycare center or uh, food if that's the issue or you know childcare, if that you know wh- whatever and the purpose is not so much to produce that service or that'll be useful but the purpose is to give everybody else a chance to see to look at to talk to people whose daily life is organized remember adults five out of seven days the best hours of the day we're at work. So the way we organize the work experience is going to have an enormous influence on everything else about us. It Mm. already does. We know that. So now how about changing the work experience and seeing whether that can make the difference that we're looking for? I think it can. And I think the examples in history suggest that given half a chance, even though of course this would threaten the old ways, the, the slavery, the feudalism, and all of that, because it really is new and different. My guess is you give working people a taste of that different way, they'll go for it. Yeah, And they'll, they'll want it. I,
1: I completely agree. I mean, one of my definitions of success is when you love going to work and love going home, because you feel right. valued in both places. And I'm not sure that we have that. Right now, I'm
0: sure that I'm sure that we don't. As I tell my students, there's a good reason why the bar that you pass on the way home has in it in neon lights Mm. happy hour. Yeah. Because they know how you feel about the other hours that you've just now put behind you. Here the bar says you can be happy. I mean, I know the joke behind it, but there's a wisdom in here right. that the bartender doesn't intend.
1: Yeah. And I I, I would, just from the neuroscience, prefer to call it pleasure hour because happiness is a slightly different neuro A whole other issue. A whole nother. So the other second truth of the I am, everyone has one. Everyone is interested through their IC domain what you think or feel about them. And that has an effect on the biological domain because, you know, it feels different when you feel respected or disrespected. You're part of someone's home or social domain. So the second truth, you control no one. You influence everyone. You get to choose the kind of influence you want to be. Professor Richard D. Wolf, what kind of influence do you want to be?
0: Well, I've lived a long time, and I've asked myself that question a lot. Hmm. And I want to be a rebel. Hmm. I want to be The one who says, you know, it doesn't have to be like this. Listen to me for five minutes. If you think I'm crazy, you know, more power to you. That's fine. But I have figured a few things out, like everybody. And one of them is, it really can be better than this. And people have, throughout history, figured that out. And that's why the world is better than it has been, because there were folks who did it. I want to be one of those.
1: Mm. I think you are.
0: All right. I well, think that, you are. That'll make, that'll make my day.
1: That'll oh, make good. my day. Oxytocin, right? You know, yeah. I, I I so appreciate your time. I There's so much more we can talk about. I, I want to be respectful of your time, but I do hope that you'd be interested and willing to come back because I think there's a lot more to talk about here. And I think the integration of the I am approach with your economic wisdom, a system has an I am. The United States has its home domain. Our social domain is our interaction with the global community, our IC domain, the way we see ourselves, the way other countries see us, which is different now than it was under George Washington and the biological domain of all of us and all of our resources. But we're doing the best we can. If we don't like it, we can change it. Professor, thank you so and, much. And I, so let much. me say very clearly to you, I love to get together
0: and do this again. So don't, you know, okay. don't hesitate. The only thing that will govern me is my schedule. Uh, and you might be amused. There was a time until about eight or nine years ago when people like me had a hard time getting a job because we were a little too reddish or pinkish,
1: mm-hmm. or something
0: like that. Um, and I would get an invitation to do radio, television, once every three, four months. Mm-hmm. And the host, whoever that was, man, woman, or whatever, would begin by saying, "Today, I'm happy to welcome Professor Richard Wolf. He's one of those." <laughs> it was like inoculating the audience, lest they get infected by whatever it is that I was bringing into the room everything has changed. And if you pick up a certain energy from me, I'm just reflecting the fact I now do three to four radio and television interviews every day. You are my fourth today. Thank you. And the interest in, well, you know, I'm captured. I used to think, oh, once every three or four months, someone wants to hear me. Imagine I'm like a child in a candy store. Everybody wants to hear the stuff that before was scary and unacceptable and and weird and foreign and alien and whatever. All of that is gone. I mean, not all of it, but the vast majority. The people I work with on our websites, we don't understand. We don't get hate mail.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Everybody else does, but we don't. Mm -hmm. We just don't. I think those people are still there, but they, they don't feel as though they're quite in charge the way perhaps they did back then. So anyway, I'm at your disposal. It's only my schedule that will stand in the way.
1: It's great. I mean, if this is your fourth interview, I can only imagine the energy you had on your first. My gosh, yeah. this was like mind-blowing, the energy. Mm-hmm. Thank thank you so much. And and again, I'm... I'm You're- Delighted, and love to continue this discussion.
0: Okay, thank you, thank you, Thomas McCoy, for all the work you put in. And as I say, get in touch, and I'm sure we'll find a time we can do this again.
1: Sounds great.
2: Thanks all right. so much. Bye-bye. Bye bye.